7. Nearly all the ground gained during the day had been lost. From daylight on December 20th the enemy commenced a heavy fire from artillery and trench mortars on the whole front of the Indian Corps. This was followed by infantry attacks, which were in a special force against Givenchy, and between that place and Lokling Crew. At about 10 a.m. the enemy succeeded in driving back the Surahine Brigade and capturing a considerable part of Givenchy, but the 57th Rifles and 9th Bokals, north of the canal, and the Connaught Rangers, south of it, stood firm. The 15th Sikhs of the Divisional Reserve were already supporting the Surahine Brigade. On the news of the retirement of the latter being received, the 47th Sikhs were also sent up to reinforce General Brunker, the 1st Manchester Regiment. 4th Suffolk Regiment, and two battalions of French territorials under General Carnegie were ordered to launch a vigorous counter-attack to retake by a flank attack the trenches lost by the Surahine Brigade. Orders were sent to General Carnegie to divert his attack on Givenchy Village, and to re-establish the situation there. A battalion of the 58th French Division was sent to Anakin in support. About 5 p.m. a gallant attack by the 1st Manchester Regiment and one company of the 4th Suffolk Regiment had captured Givenchy, and had cleared the enemy out of the two lines of trenches to the northeast. To the east of the village the 9th Bhopal Infantry and 57th Rifles had maintained their positions, but the enemy were still in possession of our trenches to the north of the village. General McBean, with the Sikandurabad Cavalry Brigade, 2nd Battalion, 8th Gorka Rifles, and the 47th Sikhs was sent up to support General Brunker, who, at 2 p.m. directed General McBean to move to a position of readiness in the second-line trenches from Mary's northward, and to counter-attack vigorously if opportunity offered. Some considerable delay appears to have occurred, and it was not until 1 a.m. on the 21st that the 47th Sikhs and the 7th Dragoon Guards, under the command of Lute, Call, H.A. Lemprier, D.S.O. of the latter regiment, were launched in counter-attack. They reached the enemy's trenches, but were driven out by enfilade fire, their gallant commander being killed. The main attack by the remainder of General McBean's force, with the remnants of Lute, Call, Lemprier's detachment, which had again been rallied, was finally rushed in at about 4.30 a.m. and also failed. In the northern section of the defensive line the retirement of the 2nd Battalion, 2nd Gorka Rifles, at about 10 a.m. on the 20th, had left the flank of the 1st Seaforth Highlanders. On the extreme right of the Meerut division line, much exposed, this battalion was left shortly afterward completely in the air by the retirement of the Surahine Brigade. The 58th Rifles, therefore, were ordered to support the left of the Seaforth Highlanders, to fill the gap created by the retirement of the Gorkas. During the whole of the afternoon strenuous efforts were made by the Seaforth Highlanders to clear the trenches to their right and left. The 1st Battalion, 9th Gorka Rifles reinforced the 2nd Gorkas near the orchard where the Germans were in occupation of the trenches abandoned by the latter regiment. The Garhol Brigade was being very heavily attacked, and their trenches and loopholes were much damaged, but the brigade continued to hold its front and attack, connecting with the 6th Jots on the left of the Derudun Brigade. No advance in force was made by the enemy, but the troops were pinned to their ground by heavy artillery fire, the Seaforth Highlanders especially suffering heavily. Shortly before nightfall the 2nd Royal Highlanders, on the right of the Seaforth Highlanders, had succeeded in establishing touch with the Surahine Brigade, and the continuous line though ended near the orchard existed throughout the Meerut Division. Early in the afternoon of December 20 orders were sent to the 1st Corps, which was then in General Army Reserve, to send an infantry brigade to support the Indian Corps. 
the 1st Brigade was ordered to Bethune, and reached that place at midnight on December 20, 21. Later in the day Sir Douglas Haig was ordered to move the whole of the 1st Division in support of the Indian Corps. The 3rd Brigade reached Bethune between 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. on the 21st, and on the same date the 2nd Brigade arrived at Lacan at 1 p.m. The 1st Brigade was directed on Givenchy, via Pontfix, and the 3rd Brigade, through Gur, on the trenches evacuated by the Surahine Brigade. The 2nd Brigade was directed to support, the Duragun Brigade being placed at the disposal of the General Officer Commanding Meerut Division. At 1 p.m. the General Officer Commanding 1st Division directed the 1st Brigade in attack from the west of Givenchy in a northeasterly direction, and the 3rd Brigade from Festubert in an east-northeasterly direction, the object being to pass the position originally held by us and to capture the German trenches 400 yards to the east of it. By 5 p.m. the 1st Brigade had obtained a hold in Givenchy, and the ground south as far as the canal, and the 3rd Brigade had progressed to a point half a mile west of Festubert. By nightfall the 1st South Wales Borderers and the 2nd Welsh Regiment of the 3rd Brigade had made a lodgment in the original trenches to the northeast of Festubert, the 1st Gloucestershire Regiment continuing the line southward along the track east of Festubert. The 1st Brigade had established itself on the east side of Givenchy. By 3 p.m. the 3rd Brigade was concentrated at Altorat, and was ordered to retake the trenches which had been lost by the Durdun Brigade. By 10 p.m. the support trenches west of the orchard had been carried, but the original fire trenches had been so completely destroyed that they could not be occupied. This operation was performed by the 1st Loyal North Lancashire Regiment and the 1st Northamptonshire Regiment, supported by the 2nd King's Royal Rifle Corps. In reserve, throughout this day the units of the Indian Corps rendered all the assistance and support they could in view of their exhausted condition. At 1 p.m. on the 22d Sir Douglas Haig took over command from Sir James Wilcox. The situation in the front line was then approximately as follows. South of the Lobasi Canal the Connaught Rangers of the Ferozpore Brigade had not been attacked. North of the canal a short length of our original line was still held by the 9th Bhopals and the 57th Rifles of the same brigade. Connecting with the latter was the 1st Brigade, holding the village of Givenchy and its eastern and northern approaches. On the left of the 1st Brigade was the 3rd Brigade. 10th had been lost between the left of the former and the right of the latter. The 3rd Brigade held a line along, and in places advanced to, the east of the Festubert Road. Its left was in communication with the right of the Meerut Division line, where troops of the 2nd Brigade had just relieved the 1st Seaforth Highlanders. To the north, units of the 2nd Brigade held an indented line west of the orchard, connecting with half of the 2nd Royal Highlanders half of the 41st Dogras, and the 1st Battalion 9th Gorka Rifles. From this point to the north the 9th Jots and the whole of the Garhold Brigade occupied the original line which they had held from the commencement of the operations. The relief of most units of the southern sector was effected on the night of December 22nd. The Meerut Division remained under the orders of the 1st Corps, and was not completely withdrawn until December 27th. In the evening the position at Givenchy was practically re-established and the 3rd Brigade had reoccupied the old line of trenches. During the 23d the enemy's activities ceased, and the whole position was restored to very much its original condition. In my last dispatch I had occasion to mention the prompt and ready help I received from the Lahore Division, under the command of Major General H.P.B. Wapkes, C.B. which was thrown into action immediately on arrival, when the British forces were very hard-pressed during the Battle of Ypres Armentiers. The Indian troops had fought with the utmost steadfastness and gallantry whenever they had been called upon, 
whether conditions were abnormally bad, the snow and floods precluding any active operations during the first three weeks of January. 5. At 7.30 a.m. on January 25th the enemy began to shell Bethune, and at 8 a.m. a strong hostile infantry attack developed south of the canal, preceded by a heavy bombardment of artillery, men and workers, and, possibly, the explosion of mines, though the latter is doubtful. The British line south of the canal formed a pronounced salient from the canal on the left, thence running forward toward the railway triangle and back to the main Labossi Bethune Road, where it joined the French. This line was occupied by half a battalion of the Scots Guards, and half a battalion of the Coldstream Guards, of the 1st Infantry Brigade. The trenches in the salient were blown in almost at once, and the enemy's attack penetrated this line. Our troops retired to a partially prepared second line, running approximately due north and south from the canal to the road, some 500 yards west of the railway triangle. This second line had been strengthened by the construction of a keep halfway between the canal and the road. Here the other two half battalions of the above-mentioned regiments were in support. These supports held up the enemy, who, however, managed to establish himself in the brick stacks and some communication trenches between the keep, the road, and the canal and even beyond the west of the keep on either side of it. The London Scottish had in the meantime been sent up in support and a counter-attack was organized with the 1st Royal Highlanders, part of the 1st Cameron Highlanders, and the 2nd King's Royal Rifle Corps, the latter regiment having been sent forward from the Divisional Reserve. The counter-attack was delayed in order to synchronize with a counter-attack north of the canal which was arranged for 1 p.m. At 1 p.m. these troops moved forward, their flanks making good progress near the road and the canal, but their center being held up. The 2nd Royal Sussex Regiment was then sent forward, late in the afternoon, to reinforce. The result was that the Germans were driven back far enough to enable a somewhat broken line to be taken up, running from the culvert on the railway, almost due south to the keep, and thence southeast to the main road. The French left near the road had also been attacked and driven back a little, but not to so great an extent as the British right. Consequently the French left was in advance of the British right, and exposed to a possible flank attack from the north. The Germans did not. However, persevere further in their attack. The above-mentioned line was strengthened during the night, and the 1st Guards Brigade, which had suffered severely, was withdrawn into a reserve and replaced by the 2nd Infantry Brigade. While this was taking place another and equally severe attack was delivered north of the canal against the village of Givenkey. At 8.15 a.m. after a heavy artillery bombardment with high explosive shells, the enemy's infantry advanced under the effective fire of our artillery, which however, was hampered by the constant interruption of telephonic communication between the observers and batteries. Nevertheless, our artillery fire, combined with that of the infantry in the fire trenches, had the effect of driving the enemy from its original direction of advance, with the result that his troops crowded together on the northeast corner of the village and broke through into the center of the village as far as the keep, which had been previously put in a state of defense. Illustration the places underlined in the above map indicate the points around Lobossi and southward to ours, where part of the British expeditionary force was heavily engaged. The Germans had lost heavily, and a well-timed local counter-attack, delivered by the reserves of the 2nd Welsh Regiment and 1st South Wales Borderers, and by a company of the 1st Royal Highlanders, led by the 1st Brigade as a working party this company was at work on the keep at the time, was completely successful. 
with the result that after about an hour's street fighting all who had broken into the village were either captured or killed, and the original line around the village was re-established by noon, south of the village, however, and close to the canal, the right of the 2nd Royal Munster Fusiliers fell back in conformity with the troops south of the canal, but after dark that regiment moved forward and occupied the old line. During the course of the attack on Givenkey the enemy made five assaults on the salient at the northeast of the village about French Farm, but was repulsed every time with heavy loss. 6. On the morning of January 29 attacks were made on the right of the 1st Corps, south of the canal in the neighborhood of Lobasi, the enemy, part of the 14th German Corps, after a severe shelling, made a violent attack with scaling ladders on the keep, also to the north and south of it. In the keep and on the north side the Sussex Regiment held the enemy off, inflicting on him serious losses. On the south side the hostile infantry succeeded in reaching the Northamptonshire Regiment's trenches, but were immediately counter-attacked and all killed. Our artillery company operated well with the infantry in repelling the attack. In the section our casualties were inconsiderable, but the enemy lost severely, more than 200 of his killed alone being left in front of our position. 7. On February 1st a fine piece of work was carried out by the 4th Brigade in the neighborhood of Quincy. Some of the 2nd Coldstream Guards were driven from their trenches at 2.30 a.m. but made a stand some 20 yards east of them in a position which they held till morning. A counter-attack, launched at 3.15 a.m. by one company of the Irish Guards and half a company of the 2nd Coldstream Guards, proved unsuccessful, owing to heavy rifle fire from the east and south. At 10.05 a.m. acting under orders of the 1st Division, a heavy bombardment was opened on the lost ground for 10 minutes, and this was followed immediately by an assault by about 50 men of the 2nd Coldstream Guards with bayonets, led by Capt. A. Lee Bennett, followed by 30 men of the Irish Guards, led by 2nd Lute, F. F. Graham, also with bayonets. These were followed by a party of Royal Engineers with sandbags and wire. All the ground which had been lost was brilliantly retaken the 2nd Coldstream Guards also taking another German trench and capturing two machine guns. 32 prisoners fell into our hands. The general officer commanding 1st Division describes the preparation by the artillery as, splendid, the high explosive shells dropping in the exact spot with absolute precision. In forwarding his report on this engagement, the general officer commanding 1st Army writes as follows, special credit is due I to Major General Haking, commanding 1st Division for the prompt manner in which he arranged this counter-attack and for the general plan of action, which was crowned with success. The eye to the general officer commanding the 4th Brigade Lord Cavon for the thorough manner in which he carried out the orders of the general officer commanding the division. The eye to the regimental officers, non-commissioned officers, and men of the 2nd Coldstream Guards and Irish Guards, who, with indomitable pluck, stormed two sets of barricades, captured three German trenches, two machine guns, and killed or made prisoners many of the enemy. 8. During the period under report the Royal Flying Corps has again performed splendid service. Although the weather was almost uniformly bad and the machines suffered from constant exposure, there have been only 14 days on which no actual reconnaissance has been effected. Approximately, 100.000 miles have been flown. In addition to the daily and constant work of reconnaissance and company operation with the artillery, a number of aerial combats have been fought, raids carried out, detrainments harassed, parks and petrol depots bombed, and see, various successful bomb-dropping raids have been carried out, 
usually against the enemy's aircraft material, the principle of attacking hostile aircraft whenever and wherever seen unless highly important information is being delivered has been adhered to, and has resulted in the moral fact that enemy machines invariably beat immediate retreat when chased. Five German aeroplanes are known to have been brought to the ground, and it would appear probable that others, though they have managed to reach their own lines, have done so in a considerably damaged condition. 9. In my dispatch of November 20, 1914, I referred to the reinforcements of territorial troops which I had received, and I mentioned several units which had already been employed in the fighting line. In the positions which I held for some years before the outbreak of this war I was brought into close contact with the territorial force, and I found every reason to hope and believe that, when the hour of trial arrived, they would justify every hope and trust which was placed in them. The Lord's Lieutenant of Counties and the associations which worked under them bestowed a vast amount of labor and energy on the organization of the territorial force, and I trust it may be some recompense to them to know that I am the principal commanders serving under me. Consider that the territorial force has far more than justified the most sanguine hopes that any of us ventured to entertain of their value and use in the field. Commanders of cavalry divisions are instinted in their praise of the manner in which the yeomanry regiments attached to their brigades have done their duty, both in and out of action. The service of divisional cavalry is now almost entirely performed by yeomanry, and divisional commanders report that they are very efficient. Army Corps commanders are loud in their praise of the territorial battalions which form part of nearly all the brigades at the front in the first line, and more than one of them have told me that these battalions are fast approaching if they have not already reached the standard of efficiency of regular infantry. I wish to add a word about the officers' training corps. The presence of the Artists' Rifles 28th Battalion, the London Regiment with the Army in France enabled me also to test the value of this organization, having had some experience in peace of the working of the officers' training corps. I determined to turn the artists' rifles which formed part of the officers' training corps in peacetime to its legitimate use. I therefore established the battalion as a training corps for officers in the field. The cadets passade through a course, which includes some thoroughly practical training, as all cadets do a tour of 48 hours in the trenches, and afterward write a report on what they see and notice. They also visit an observation post of a battery or group of batteries, and spend some hours there. A commandant has been appointed, and he arranges and supervises the work, sets schemes for practice, administers the school, delivers lectures, and reports on the candidates. The cadets are instructed in all branches of military training suitable for platoon commanders, machine gun tactics, a knowledge of which is so necessary for all junior officers, is a special feature of the course of instruction. When first started, the school was able to turn out officers at the rate of 75 a month. This has since been increased to 100. Reports received from divisional and army corps commanders on officers who have been trained at the school are most satisfactory. 10. Since the date of my last report I have been able to make a close personal inspection of all the units in the command. I was most favorably impressed by all I saw. The troops composing the army in France have been subjected to as severe a trial as it is possible to impose upon any body of men. The desperate fighting described in my last dispatch had hardly been brought to a conclusion when they were called upon to face the rigors and hardships of a winter campaign. Frost and snow have alternated with periods of continuous rain. The men have been called upon to stand for many hours together almost up to their waists in bitterly cold water only separated by one or two hundred yards from a most vigilant enemy. 
although every measure which science and medical knowledge could suggest to mitigate these hardships was employed, the sufferings of the men have been very great. In spite of all this they presented, at the inspections to which I have referred, a most soldier-like, splendid, though somewhat war-worn, appearance. Their spirit remains high and confident, their general health is excellent, and their condition most satisfactory. I regard it as most unfortunate that circumstances have prevented any account of many splendid instances of courage and endurance, in the face of almost unparalleled hardship and fatigue in war, coming regularly to the knowledge of the public. Reinforcements had arrived from England with remarkable promptitude and rapidity. They had been speedily drafted into the ranks, and most of the units I inspected were nearly complete when I saw them. In appearance and quality the drafts sent out have exceeded my most sanguine expectations and I consider the army in France as much indebted to the adjutant general's department at the war office for the efficient manner in which its requirements have been met in this most essential respect. With regard to these inspections I may mention in particular the fine appearance presented by the 27th and 28th divisions, composed principally of battalions which had come from India. Included in the former division was the Princess Patricia's Royal Canadian Regiment. They are a magnificent set of men and have since done excellent work in the trenches. It was some three weeks after the events recorded in paragraph 4 that I made my inspection of the Indian Corps, under Sir James Wilcox. The appearance they presented was most satisfactory and fully confirmed my opinion that the Indian troops only required rest and a little acclimatizing to bring out all their fine inherent fighting qualities. I saw the whole of the Indian Cavalry Corps, under Lute, General Remington, on a mounted parade soon after their arrival. They are a magnificent body of cavalry and will, I feel sure, give the best possible account of themselves when called upon. In the meantime, at their own particular request, they have taken their turn in the trenches and performed most full and valuable service. 11. The Right Ref. Bishop Taylor Smith, CDODD Chaplain General to the Forces, arrived at my headquarters on January 6th, on a tour of inspection throughout the command. The Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster has also visited most of the Irish regiments at the front and the principal centres on the line of communications. In a quiet and inostentatious manner the chaplains of all denominations have worked with devotion and energy in their respective spheres. The number with the forces in the field at the commencement of the war was comparatively small, but toward the end of last year the Ref. J. M. Sims, D.D.K.H.C. Principal Chaplain, assisted by his secretary, the Ref. W. Drury, reorganized the branch and placed the spiritual welfare of the soldier on a more satisfactory footing. It is hoped that the further increase of personnel may be found possible. I cannot speak too highly of the devoted manner in which all the chaplains, whether with the troops in the trenches or in attendance on the sick and wounded in casualty clearing stations and hospitals on the line of communications, have worked throughout the campaign. Since the commencement of hostilities the work of the Royal Army Medical Corps has been carried out with untiring zeal, skill, and devotion, whether at the front under conditions such as obtained during the fighting on the aim, when casualties were heavy and accommodation for their reception had to be improvised, or on the line of communications, where an average of some 11.000 patients have been daily under treatment. The organization of the medical service has always been equal to the demands made upon it. The careful system of sanitation introduced into the army has, with the assistance of other measures, kept the troops free from any epidemic, in support of which it is to be noticed that since the commencement of the war some 500 cases only of enteric had occurred, 
The organization for the first time in war of motor ambulance convoys is due to the initiative and organizing powers of Surgeon General T.J. O'Donnell, DSO ably assisted by Major P. Evans, Royal Army Medical Corps. Two of these convoys, composed entirely of Red Cross Society personnel, have done excellent work under the superintendence of regular medical officers. Twelve hospital trains ply between the front and the various bases. I had visited several of the trains when halted in stations, and had found them conducted with great comfort and efficiency. During the more recent phase of the campaign the creation of rest depots at the front has materially reduced the wastage of men to the line of communications. Since the latter part of October, 1914, the whole of the medical arrangements have been in the hands of Surgeon General Sir A.T. Sloggett, CMGKHS under whom Surgeon General T.P. Woodhouse and Surgeon General T.J. O'Donnell have been responsible for the organization on the line of communications and at the front respectively. 12. The exceptional and peculiar conditions brought about by the weather have caused large demands to be made upon the resources and skill of the Royal Engineers. Every kind of expedient has had to be thought out and adopted to keep the lines of trenches and defense work effective. The Royal Engineers have shown themselves as capable of overcoming the ravages caused by violent rain and floods as they have been throughout in neutralizing the effect of the enemy's artillery. In this connection I wish particularly to mention the excellent services performed by my Chief Engineer, Brig. General G. H. Fauk, who has been indefatigable in supervising all such work. His ingenuity and skill have been most valuable in the local construction of the various expedients which experience has shown to be necessary in prolonged trench warfare. 13. I had no reason to modify in any material degree my views of the general military situation, as expressed in my dispatch of November 20, 1914. 14. I have once more gratefully to acknowledge the valuable help and support I have received throughout this period from General Foch, General Durdle and General Motui of the French Army, I had the honor to be, your lordship's most obedient servant, J.D.P. French, Field Marshal, Commanding-in-Chief, the British Army in the field, the Cathedral of Rheims by Emile Vrhadarian from Els Blaise movements done into English verse by Joyce Kilmer, he who walks through the meadows of Champagne at noon in fall, when leaves like gold appear, sees it draw near like some great mountain set upon the plain, from radiant dawn until the close of day. Nearer it grows to him who goes across the country, when tall towers lay their shadowy pall upon his way. He enters, where the solid stone is hollowed deep by all its centuries of beauty and of prayer. Ancient French temple, thou whose hundred kings watch over thee, emblazoned on thy walls. Tell me, within thy memory hallowed halls what chant of triumph, or what war song rings, thou hast known Clovis and his Frankish train whose mighty hand St. Remy's hand did keep and in thy spacious vault perhaps may sleep an echo of the voice of Charlemagne. For God thou hast known fear, when from his side men wandered, seeking alien shrines and new. But still the sky was bountiful and blue and thou wast crowned with France's love and pride. Sacred thou art, from pinnacle to base, and in thy panes of gold and scarlet glass the setting sun sees thousandfold his face, sorrow and joy, in stately silence pass across thy walls. The shadow and the light, around thy lofty pillars, tapers white illuminate, with delicate sharp flames, the brows of saints with venerable names, and in the night erect a fiery wall, a great but silent fervor burns in all those simple folk who kneel, pathetic, dumb, and know that down below, beside the Rhine cannon, horses, soldiers, flags in line with blare of trumpets, mighty armies come, suddenly, 
Each knows fear, swift rumors pass, that everyone must hear. The hostile banners blaze against the sky and by the embassies mobs rage and cry. Now war has come, and peace is at an end. On Paris town the German troops descend, they turn back, and driven to Champagne. And now, as to so many weary men, the glorious temple gives them welcome, when, it meets them at the bottom of the plain, at once, they set their cannon in its way, there is no gable now, nor wall that does not suffer, night and day, as shot and shell in crushing torrents fall, the stricken toxin quivers through the tower, the triple nave, the apse, the lonely choir are circled, hour by hour, with thundering bands of fire and death is scattered broadcast among men, and then that which was splendid with baptismal grace, the stately arches soaring into space, the transepts, columns, windows gray and gold, the organ, in whose tones the ocean rolled, the crypts, of mighty shades the dwelling places, the virgin's gentle hands, the saints' pure faces, all, even the pardoning hands of Christ the Lord were struck and broken by the wanton sword of sacrilegious lust, O beauty slain, O glory in the dust, strong walls of faith, most basely overthrown, the crawling flames, like adders glistening ate the white fabric of this lovely thing, now from its soul arose a piteous moan, the soul that always loved the just and fair, granite and marble loud their woe confessed, the silver monstrances that Pope has blessed, the chalices and lamps and cross ears rare were seared and twisted by a flaming breath, the horror everywhere did rage and swell, the guardian saint,